Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. My next guest is Haley Stewart. She's the editor of Word on Fire Spark, which is the section of the Word on Fire books, which are for children. Welcome to the show, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. So, Haley, as I um, explained earlier in the introduction, you are the editor of Word on Fire Spark, which is the children's section of the of the books uh, on offer at Word on Fire, which I have too many of. It's a it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> and one of the books I recently bought, and I bought it for. I have a granddaughter on the way. She won't even be born till next month. But I bought her The Golden Key by George MacDonald, and I was very. I mean, the book is gorgeous. The actual the binding and everything is beautiful. But I was really fascinated by your fascination with George MacDonald, and I thought it'd be such a wonderful thing to talk about. George MacDonald, and I'll, I'll let you give us his biography and why he's important, but he happens to be very important to me as a Victorian writer. I love Victorian literature, so he's a minor Victorian, you could say. And also his theology is very beautiful. I'm a, I'm a daily mass going Catholic, very orthodox in my Catholicism, but he is one of the people that I turn to a lot, like maybe almost every day, for for um, for his for his contact with Christ, which was so stunning to me. I read his uncommon sermons, for instance, almost every day. A little a little section. So, what? May, why don't I let you tell our listeners about George Macdonald? Who was he? Why is he important? Why Why did he light the lights that? How did he light the lights that he lighted, which most people nowadays sadly don't know about? Sure. So George MacDonald was a Scottish Victorian. He was a congregationalist minister and he had 11 children. So very big family. Um, And he wrote children's stories, sermons, just all kinds of things. He's a prolific writer, and he's considered kind of the grandfather of the Oxford Inklings. So C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien were are really indebted to his fantasy literature. And they they were, um, he was kind of the the forerunner for, for that group. And then he was also very, very influential on the life of G.K. Chesterton, the British writer and Catholic convert and apologist. And so he just, he's somewhat forgotten now, you know, and not a lot of people are very familiar with him and his writings the way we're familiar with Chesterton and Lewis and Tolkien, but he had this huge influence and kind of started this genre of fantasy literature that's now so incredibly popular. Children in the in the in the 20th century, early 20th century maybe and certainly in the late uh, 19th century, they would have read George MacDonald the same way our children, I don't know, watch Nickelodeon <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> right? Is that true? I, I think he was very widely read at that time especially books like The Princess and the Goblin and The Princess and Curdy. The the collection that we published through Word on Fire has The Golden Key and The Light Princess and Little Daylight, which are all kind of shorter fairy tales that he wrote. But he was a big figure at that time. And I think he, he still has a huge influence on contemporary fantasy writers like Neil Gaiman or Madeline Lingle. They loved and, and read his work. And so you can see his influence you know, through through the decades. And I'm excited about this, this book, The Golden Key, being being reprinted just to get his work in the hands of more young people today. MacDonald uh, was called by Chesterton the St. Francis of Aberdeen. Uh, C.S. Lewis called him, I think, my spiritual master. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know exactly what Tolkien called him, um, but I know that he was extremely influential in his his, uh, art, in Tolkien's art, which 
so many of us have benefited from, right? Especially boys, I think, that love the Lord of the Rings and and have seen mm-hmm. that hero uh, mythology, um, that wonderful that wonderful struggle between good and evil, which we can only really grasp in narrative, right? Um, what you know? What? Let me ask you about narrative. What is it about narrative and and the and the story? The story, like with a capital S, the story um, that allows us to grasp truths that might not be available otherwise. Sure. Well, I think that we're wired by God to understand through stories. We see Jesus telling his disciples parables when he's trying to to teach them. He could have given them a lecture, but instead he tells them a story because we really are designed to understand ourselves and our place in the world and what kind of world we live in. All of these big questions, we're able to grapple with them best through stories. And so this is why the stories that we read and are formed by and the stories that we share with children are so incredibly influential and formative for how we see everything. <laughs> Both, you know, who are we within the story of our lives? What character am I? You know, all of all of these things are so important. And so to be able to receive something like the gospel and the truth of the gospel, it's very helpful to be formed by stories that prepare our hearts for that. And both Chesterton and Lewis talk about George MacDonald's fairy tales and how they kind of baptized the imagination. That's that's the words that C.S. Lewis used. Um, Chesterton said something to the effect of reading The Princess and the Goblin changed his whole existence. You know, there's something about a story that reflects the gospel in some way, which is, I think, a very good description of George MacDonald's fairy tales. They are kind of a reflection of the truths of the gospel, a different way of telling the gospel story that form our imagination to then be able to receive the gospel. Mm-hmm. So the stories in, 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 these, in these, uh, these wonderful fairy tales of George MacDonald and, and, and in other fairy tales that followed, right? Uh, um, they... They sh- they sh- orient us to to the higher things like to truth and goodness and beauty in ways that dry facts can never do right like they they shape our minds and they they give us like a path that our minds can follow towards something high and noble. How does that work Absolutely. exactly? Tell me how do you think that works exactly? <laughs> that the story does that. I'm fascinated by mm-hmm. the the way that that sort of pulls something out from inside of us that we didn't even know was there. I think it has to do with imagination. And I think when our imagination is engaged, that's just such a powerful guide. So while we can sit and receive information, you know, from a lecture, someone explaining something, we can receive that information that doesn't transform us the same way as a story does. And you see this even with with journalism. You know, they can explain, here's a catastrophe that happened. But if they say, you know, so-and-so woke up to the shake of an earthquake and this is what happened to him, then suddenly we're very engaged because a story is being told to us and so we're connecting with that story. So I think it's just the way that we are created by God is that our our imagination is engaged through narrative. One of the things that modern parents, uh, I think, do is that they sanitize the world, the stories around that the children consume, right? Uh, I mean, tell me if you agree. (laughs) But we absolutely we uh, when you read like Grimm's fairy tales or George MacDonald's stories that that were for children, they are for children. Uh, although we adults love them, um, that they, they are not sanitized. They have very strong themes, uh, things that are shocking even for an adult to read about, like real poverty, uh, real loneliness, um, moments of great despair that, that are happening to children, right? Uh, uh, violent things that happen in, in fairy tales and in these stories of George MacDonald. Why... Why is it important to have those elements in there? Why is it wrong to sanitize stories for our children? Well, I think this is such an interesting point. And while 
all of us, of course, want to protect our children, right? To, to shield them from things that are distressing. This is a very natural desire. And yet we can really take this too far when we sanitize all the stories we offer children, because stories are the way that we wrestle with and process the dark things in life. And so if we don't have those stories, we don't have the tools we need to face the things that we're going to face in life. And so things like being worried about death, most human beings are worried about death and most children do on some level think about this. So if a child expresses, you know, concern or anxiety about this and we kind of gloss over it, then we're giving them no tools with which to face this and grapple with it and process it. And I think this is why children are so fascinated with fairy tales that deal with real evil, you know, real sin and brokenness or with mortality, because they children are smart. You know, they know that there are things in the world to be frightened of. And if we are always dismissing their fears rather than allowing them fairy tales, for instance, or stories where there's a world where they can safely process, they can safely walk with the hero of the story and face the same dragons the hero is facing, this is really essential or else we actually only increase their anxiety about these things rather than protect them from it. So it's a kind of exercising their bravery the bravery component of their character, right? Like the courage that everyone's born with. We're all born with courage and bravery somewhere that we can access if we try. So maybe these maybe these stories where real evil is met with, like evil, shocking evil. Um, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe these stories allow children to practice um, developing that part of their characters. Could that be? I think that's absolutely true because the child is reading and connecting with these characters. They're seeing themselves in the characters. And so as they journey with the characters who are having to be brave, who are having to um, make sacrifices for the people they care about, are having to do all these things, they are really practicing what that looks like. And I think it's very, very important. And I think also um, one of my favorite writers and writers about writing for children is the author Catherine Patterson. She's a, um, she's not Catholic, but she is a Christian author. And she wrote a book, The Bridge to Terabithia, which is a lot about processing the death of a child, a friend who died is the main character is processing this. And she said that a lot of times people will tell her, oh, you know, I know a child who had someone in their life who died, and then I gave them your book. And she says, oh, I wish you'd given it to them before. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish they'd had a chance to read it before, because then they would have been more prepared to deal with that. And so I think it's just, you know, it's a natural reaction to try to protect our children and want to shelter them. That's good and beautiful. But also, we, we can take it too far in a way that's no longer protecting them, it is actually harming them, not giving them that fairy land to explore and kind of face all those fears. When I think about the the children's fair, right, that's normally given to them now, and I have five children and I've I've tried to, no, I haven't tried. I think I've succeeded in reading along with them and the things that they're being offered at school and, and also watching the stuff they watch on TV. Um, the the problems that they're that that they're confronted with in today's literature and today's TV are very they're almost like problems of they're very t- they're very small and and they're problems almost of like um, they're almost like mechanical problems right like I have to get from here to mm-hmm. there and how am I going to do it like everything's very material and very basic and there are no real big moral issues right because fairy tales go to the morality of of things right things that are very very bad are shown to be very, very bad. And and the child in the tale confronts um, things that are that are large and significant, as opposed mm-hmm. to the things that we see. It's almost like we're building little minds that are going to go work in a little office somewhere <laughs> when they grow up. Instead of instead of men like boys and girls who are grown who are going to grow up to be men and women who confront real problems and and can triumph mm-hmm. can triumph over real challenges not just little material 
you know, how do I arrange my day today so I can, so I can, so I can make enough, I can make enough widgets by the end of the day. <laughs> I'm thinking of the American Girl series that I read yes, as American a little girl. girl. They had these these historical novels. You know, what each character would be a different era of American history, and so you'd have Addie who is needing to escape from slavery and and journey flee north with her mother, and you had these really intense difficult challenges Mm -hmm. and then as the books kind of progressed from what I understand I haven't read to be fair I haven't read a lot of the newer ones but it's things like the art programs getting shut down at Sage's school how can she save the art program and of course I believe in art programs I want to save the art program but this is kind of on a different level of intensity um and Mm -hmm. I I think it's almost like we think well the the child reader is too precious to handle something like this and yet it, this is the age where our children have active shooter drills in their classrooms yes, which is terrifying exactly. you know so th- they we treat them so sensitively with some stories and yet they're having to face very difficult very scary things in the world and so to rob them of the fairy tales that can help them it does them such a disservice I'm going to maul a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm sure you you know it, and you're going to correct me. But uh, C.S. Lewis said something like, children are going to grow up to face real, um, real dragons, right? Real disasters and real horrible things. Why don't we also teach them about heroes? So that they can mm-hmm. they can model themselves. And do you know the quote? Am I? I know I'm. I'm just well. It might be. It might be a Chesterton quote actually, where he says the child has always, since infancy, feared a dragon, but we have to give them a Saint George to fight the dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, to to know that that there's a there's a hero that can fight the dragon. The dragon can be overcome. And I think that's really key. It's just reality that children fear things because they know there's things in the world to be afraid of. We all know that. So, but to offer them a a story where that evil is conquered and they have the hope of triumph, that's really the tricky part. Haley, uh, in George MacDonald, the heroes, and whether that's his fantasy literature or his many, many novels, which I have to highly recommend to all our listeners... Because I, I I love his novels. I think there's like 65 of them. Um, the heroes have a certain the heroes have a certain um, collection of, of of qualities and 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 character and the a type of character. How would you describe George McDonald's heroes, whether they're boys mm. or girls or adult men and women? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think that he. McDonald has such an interesting combination of um, strangeness in his stories. It's just so, it's almost, I've heard him described as he's like a character from one of his fairy tales. You know, he's this kind of strange prophet-like character. And then he has these strange stories. It seems to me, at least in, in the children's literature that he's written, that there is kind of this... Um, innocence and openness in his heroes. It's not that they're incredibly skilled, but they have this um, sense of openness to a character who is able to guide them to what's true. So I'm thinking about the princess and the goblin, Princess Irene finds this woman who lives in the in a tower above her house and is able to teach her what she needs to know to go on this journey and provide her. So it's almost as if there's this um, humility that the character has in order to have the, the courage to go out and to listen to, to wisdom that's going to guide them on their way. And many of George McDonald's heroes are, don't start out as heroes, which I think is also a very lovely thing for children to be exposed to and to to model themselves on, right? To p- people Absolutely. that kind of personal growth where you you start out maybe cowardly and sniveling and and <laughs> backstabbing, <laughs> you know, and at the end of this of this adventure the 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 person you you were meant to be it finally manifests itself. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference from perhaps fairy tales and like, say, the classical myths. You have Hercules and his labors, but he's already a demigod. You know, we're Mm -hmm. not going to be like Hercules. But in a fairy tale, 
you're introduced to a character who could be you, who's just out on you know, on a walk in the woods when something happens. And I think that that's one of the reasons that children really connect with fairy tales in a different way because they can imagine themselves within the story. Haley, we don't we don't have too much time left, but I want to talk to you about Word on Fire. Your work with Word on Fire. What is obviously it's a work of evangelization. What's uh, what's with the outreach to children? How do you see that as a as a piece of the great puzzle of Word on Fire? Sure. Well, I think that really the heart of it is seeking to form the imagination with good stories, whether that's stories about the saints that really inspire us. We can start to imagine how how is God calling me to be a saint? How could I how could I become a saint? What, what does that look like? And and looking at these stories or even you know fairy tales that we've been talking about, how powerful they are, and kind of preparing our hearts to receive the gospel, which both wrestles with evil and offers this eternal hope at the end that we, that we see in fairy tales, that there's this justice and beauty and resolution at the end of the fairy tale. And we do believe that's what kind of story we're in if we believe the truth of the gospel. And so that's what I see as like really the heart of our ministry to children is seeking to form their imaginations to prepare them to receive the gospel. And what is lacking in the general culture that you're filling in in that in that particular in that particular space? What's what's the great lack? I, th- I out think there? there's two things. I think one of them is beauty. I think many books that are published for children don't respect the child reader enough to offer them the most beautiful language, the most interesting stories, the most gorgeous illustrations. And so that's something that we really seek to do is have a love and respect for the child reader to offer them what's most beautiful. And then I think the other thing that we see, it's kind of the flip side to offering stories that take out that overly sanitize is just so many stories where the narrative is one of despair. And so to instead offer a narrative of hope that's, you know, more than positive thinking or wishful thinking, oh, everything's going to be fine, but starts to form the imagination with a sense of the kind of hope at the end of the fairy tale, that everything that's wrong, it is going to be set right. And that's what kind of universe we live in. Tell us some of some of the selections that are available for children on uh, on Word on Fire. Besides, we already talked about the Golden Key and the other two stories from George MacDonald, which, by the way, I have bought as I mentioned before, and it's beautifully <laughs> it's beautifully bound. Um, I probably buy one book a week from from Word on Fire. My husband complains. But, <laughs> so last, uh, I have a son. For instance, this has had nothing to do with fairy tales, but I have a son who my oldest son is is working in AI and. And we were talking about ethics and how ethics is not, he doesn't see any sign of ethics in the people he works with. So mm-hmm. I bought him Peter, Dr. Peter Crave's book from Word on Fire, basic, uh, Ethics for Beginners. It's so beautifully bound. Um, and, and I think that that's part of that, uh, that Word on Fire vision, which is that there has to be beauty also in all of this, right? Like if we neglect beauty at our, at our peril. What so tell right. me? So that was a segue, but I mean, sorry, that was a, a sure. detour. That was a detour. <laughs> but tell me what other great stories that our, our our listeners can buy on Word on Fire for their children or grandchildren. Absolutely. So um, one of our big releases last year, and just love it so much. I'm so excited about it. Is called Saintly Creatures. 14 Tales of Animals and Their Holy Companions. So it's a beautiful hardback kind of storybook collection, 14 stories about 14 different saints. And they're all saints who have some sort of animal story. You know, there's St. Martin de Porres and and the legend about the mice. There's more um, unusual saints, Blessed James Hyo Inbok, who's a Korean martyr and the tiger. And this, the illustrations are incredible. The stories are engaging. So we, we love that one. We're so excited about it. And then we also released our first board book, which is the Bless the Lord Canticle from the Book of Daniel that's in the Liturgy of the Hours. So it's the idea, the idea is that as a family, 
is praying the liturgy of the hours to offer infants and toddlers something beautiful to hold on to and, and get to participate and learn the canticles along with their family in prayer. And then in 2024, we have a lot of exciting things coming out. We have a biography of Venerable Jerome Lejeune, who was a oh, geneticist nice. um, who discovered a, a aimed at children. Yes, it's a picture book, picture book biography. So it's just a beautiful story about he's discovered the chromosomal component of Down syndrome and became this advocate for for um, the the lives of, of these unborn children. And so it's just this really beautiful story. We have a story of um, called Princesses of Heaven. It's a collection of, of female saints for you know, kind of the age three to six little girl age range. And then we have two books that are called Shine a Light books, Light of the Saints and Light of the Sacraments, which is coming, the next second one is coming out soon. And you shine a flashlight on one page and you can kind of see an image on the page in front of it. So it's really great for showing the sacraments and kind of showing the the invisible grace that's happening behind the scenes of each sacrament. So that one's a lot of fun. Oh, well, I confess to having already bought three or four of these and my husband will just have to put up with me buying more. I, I picture my, my granddaughter who's coming see, sitting and being read to at first by, by her mother and father. And, and what I also, what I, what, what attracts me so much is the evangelization it will do for the parents who are sitting and reading. And, um, you know, let's face it, a lot of yeah, parents with children. The parents aren't well, well formed, and these books are going to have such a beautiful effect on on the entire family. So, thank you so much, Haley Stewart, editor of Word on Fire Spark, for the beautiful work you're doing, bring, bringing truth and beauty and and goodness to children through books. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun to talk about. Joining us now is Monica Kelsey. She's the founder and CEO of Safe Haven Baby Boxes. And she's here to tell us all about that. It sounds like a wonderful thing, a Safe Haven Baby Box, Monica. Oh, well, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Tell us about what's, what is a Safe Haven Baby Box to start with? Uh, Safe Haven Baby Box is extension of the already existing Safe Haven Law that's in all 50 states where a parent can walk into a any hospital in America, hand a worker their newborn, turn around, no questions asked. The box just takes it one step further and allows a parent to place a child in an electronically monitored box that calls 911 on its own. Uh, it's heated on the inside. Uh, the babies are inside for roughly about two minutes, but it allows the parent anonymity where they don't have to walk in and hand their child to a person. They can actually place their child in this box knowing that on the other side of that box is a firefighter or medical staff at a hospital. You know, this used to be something that, that existed in in the Middle Ages, and I think it, it still exists in very old hospitals in Europe where there's an actual opening where a young mother, a young father, or, or anybody who wasn't able to care for an infant could just come and, and place the baby in, a, in, in that in that warm, safe space. Or maybe we can imagine it in convents, right? Like you might bring a baby and ring a bell and run away. Um, so it's hard to believe that that uh, in this day and age is still necessary, but obviously it is. And your own particular story, tell us about your own personal story, which I know you don't mind sharing. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, back in 1973, there was no safe haven law. And uh, my birth mom was 17 years old. She was brutally attacked and raped and left along the side of the road. And this, of course, was when abortion was illegal in our country, even in the cases of rape and incest. And I'm not here to debate abortion. I'm just stating that, that the law wasn't there and that probably saved this child's life and so she was hidden for the remainder of the pregnancy and then she gave birth in April of 1973 and abandoned her child uh, two hours after that child was born and that child was made and so I, I do stand on the front lines of this ministry as one of these kids that wasn't lovingly and safely and legally and anonymously placed in a, in a safe haven baby box by a parent that wanted me and so uh, this is my legacy and I am their voice and, and it's an honor to walk alongside these moms who choose this and then also their children who are growing up knowing how special they truly are because their birth mother 
loved them so much that they kept them safe and placed them in a place where they knew they'd be taken care of. Monica, I have my fifth child is a little girl from China, and in China there's no safe haven law, and there's no ability to give up your child for adoption or to find another home in a legal manner for your child. And of course, they also have they used to have a one child policy. Now they have a two child policy in some parts of China. It's sort of like the um, an, an experiment in how not to not how not to receive children into this world in a loving way, right? And so my own child, because there was no safe haven law in China and there's no baby boxes, she was left on the street at, at, as a newborn, so just wrapped in in a blanket and left on a on the, on the sidewalk of a busy city. So that's. That's the other. That's the other extreme, right? Of of a place where there is no safe haven and nothing like a baby box. Do you think that there are situations even here in the United States where people are cho- women or mothers or or couples are choosing a safe haven baby box instead of a street corner or uh, a bathroom? Maybe it's sometimes women, girls and women give birth in bathrooms and leave the baby there. You know, we're hearing from a lot of these parents who are utilizing our safe haven baby boxes, and I can tell you 100% yes that these babies would not have been surrendered safely and legally if it wasn't for the baby box. And so, um, you know, we just had this past week, we had two babies in boxes, one in New Mexico and one in St. Louis, Missouri. And, and it's working. The process is working. These women see the process. They've already exhausted all of their other options. They, they've looked into adoption plans. They've looked into parenting plans. They've looked into walking into a facility and they don't choose those. And so they're choosing the safe haven baby box as the last resort option. And that's truly what it is. I'm quoted often as saying, the baby box is not a good option. It's only a good option if it's the last option this parent has left. Mm-hmm. And that's what we stand by because we do think that a parent that can walk into a facility and hand the child to a person is way better than placing your baby in a box. But on the flip side of that, kind of like what's happening in China, if you don't give this option, we're going to continue to find babies left at the doors of safe haven locations where these parents want these children found. They want their child to survive, but they don't want to go face to face with anyone. And so having a safe haven baby box in a community is vital uh, for those parents who refuse to walk in and go face to face with a worker. Do you think it's a there's an element of shame? Is that what's keeping them from, from handing the baby over? Or maybe an element of, or, or more like misunderstanding the process or maybe thinking that they might be prosecuted for not wanting to take care of their child, things like that? I think all of the above. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I really do. I think, you know, one, we need better education on the safe haven law in general. We also, you know, some of these babies have uh, illegal substances in in their system and these parents don't want to be prosecuted. And so that's another case. You know, so I, I think everything that you could possibly imagine could possibly go into a safe haven surrender. I mean, some of these babies are being saved, um, you know, from abuse. Uh, and, and so, you know, having options for parents to allow them to choose what they want, what, what they feel is best for their child in any situation, I think really speaks values to a society that allows a parent to make that choice. You know, I get people that say all the time, the safe haven baby box, why would a mother choose that? Why would she not? Mm. You know, why, why would she not? All it is is a closed adoption. You know, and if she doesn't want to face anyone and she doesn't want to sign any papers for an adoption, why not choose the safe haven law? Are these you children, know, are these infants uh, uh, basically uh, almost always or always babies that were born at home and and away from a hospital or can a woman does it happen sometimes that a woman takes a baby home and then changes her mind Uh, about 95 percent of these babies are not born in hospitals ah okay so you can see that the majority of the women that we serve are are the ones that are birthing at home so it must happen it must happen often that these might be the the babies of young young mothers, right? Women, uh, girls, even who who have no one to turn to or are terrified of the whole thing. Uh, we've had women as young as thirteen that we've helped, and we've had women as old as forty four. So anywhere in between is really, uh, you know, every woman deals with a crisis sometime in their life. We're, we're not, you know, every person goes through it, and. Uh, so at different stages 
Um, but stereotypes for us, you really can't use, you know, young women, old women, uh, financially secure women versus, you know, uh, women that are, are not coming from a means. But because of Carmel and Deanna, so Carmel and Deanna, I talk about them a lot. Uh, simply because Carmel is the wealthiest city in Indiana. I was actually criticized when I put a box there because they're the 45th wealthiest city in America and the wealthiest city in Indiana. And uh, they hold the record for the amount of babies being placed in their safe haven baby box. And so wow. you can't really look at babies that come from, you know, you know, parents that don't have any money versus parents that, you know, you can't look at that. It's, you know, everybody deals with crisis differently. And so I'm just, you know, we're just honored that we can be there for a mother in need uh, when she feels that this is the only option that she has left. And Monica, what typically happens to a baby after the baby's been surrendered in, into the safe haven of the baby box? So as soon as the baby is surrendered, uh, a fire personnel on the other side of the box pulls that infant from that box and then uh, uh, takes the baby to a hospital for immediate evaluation. At that point, the Department of Child Services, depending on the state, every state is different at this point. Some states allow for adoption agencies to take control of these babies, and some states allow uh, the Department of Child Services to take custodies of these babies. Um, and so normally, though, the majority of the states allow the Department of Child Services to place them in what they call a foster to adopt program. And basically what that means is, is the baby goes straight into uh, foster care for th about 30 days, 30 to 45 days is normally the average. And then as they, uh, as this baby is in foster care, they're doing all of the legal paperwork to try and find a set of parents that match this child. And, uh, and then usually within 30 to 45 days, that baby is placed with their forever family and the paperwork then takes six months, sometimes a year. Uh, but the baby at least is with their forever family uh, pretty quickly. And in some states, the baby goes straight home from the hospital to the set of adoptive parents. So, uh, but again, every state is different. It really depends on the state. Do you find uh, that some babies are abandoned because of disability? Or that's not in your experience? Uh, like the baby is disabled? Yes, the baby's disabled. No, I don't see that. I mean, I know that other countries report that. Uh, but... I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't think that would be something that I would even put out there. I mean, every child deserves this right to life, mm -hmm. and whether they're disabled or they're not. Um, but I don't think that a parent would just choose a baby box because their child was disabled. I think that these parents are in a moment of crisis, whether the child's healthy, whether the child has drugs in their system, whether the child is, is you know, disabled. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think it's because of the crisis, not because of the child. Yeah, no, no, of course. I, I wonder because in other countries, there's a, you know, rife, a, a rampant abandonment of disabled children. But I suppose that has a lot to do with poor, like lack of resources, right? Like it's a different kind of crisis to have a disabled child than to have a child that you know you cannot care for because you simply can't, right? It's not the yeah, child. Yeah, uh, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I went to a uh, convention, a baby box convention in Japan in 2018, and there was 13 countries that were represented there. And uh, Seoul, South Korea is the number one city for uh, babies that are disabled, that are placed in boxes. And I think that's a culture thing there. Um, but they, they actually, at the time that I was there in 2018, they only had one box. It was in a guy's home. It was Pastor Lee. He's an amazing pastor. Um, but he's had over 2,000 babies come through his one box since 2009. Amazing. They, yeah, he's getting, he's getting like 30 babies a month. I mean, he's averaging one a day. And a lot of those babies are disabled and older babies, you know, like a couple of months old. And so, um, but some of them, are, of course, are younger. And it's it's just different here. You know, the babies that we're getting through the Baby Box program, 95% of them are newborn, uh, born at home or in a bathroom, you know, a gas station bathroom, a, a homeless shelter, whatever. Um, so I just think that might be just a little bit of a culture difference. You know, when my, hus my husband uh, is a doctor and he, he, before he became a radiologist, he practiced OBGYN or he, st he trained an OBGYN in our big public hospital here where, where we live in Miami. And many, it wasn't unusual. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a daily occurrence, 
But it wasn't unheard of for a woman, usually a young woman, sometimes very obese, to, to come to the hospital in labor, not even knowing she had been pregnant um, or, or having had delivered uh, unexpectedly, like completely unexpectedly. So I imagine, like, we, it's hard for us, no, sometimes to put ourselves in, in the shoes of someone for whom the, a birth is a catastrophic event. But this is exactly, I think, who is the, the mothers that are finding a safe haven for their babies, which is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing to do. Well, and, you know, if they, if they don't know that they're pregnant and, and they do give birth, I mean, they have options. So anybody that's listening and this does happen to, there's so many options out there uh, that you can choose, um, you know, to make sure that, you know, you're protected, your baby's protected. And, and maybe 10 years down the road, you want to get pictures and letters about this child. You know, a great plan for that would be an adoption, an open adoption plan. Yeah. You know, so there are so many resources for these parents who do find themselves in that situation. Um, because you're right, it does happen. It, it, it absolutely happens. What, Monica, where did you see the, the original baby box that, that you were inspired to, to create this, this beautiful ministry? Um, I was in Cape Town, South Africa, and there was a, a what they call a baby safe in the side of a church. And it's interesting, too, because this church was the only church in Cape Town that had a baby safe. And so Christ literally, I mean, my whole life, I look back now and I think, you know, how blessed am I to have been in every position that I was in to get me to this moment mm-hmm. where, where I live my life today. And there is no mistaking it that... I was meant to be there on that day at that time in my life, um, how I could make this work in America. Wow. That's beautiful that you were able to see that and, and have it activate a beautiful mission for you. And how, how do these safety baby boxes, how, how does it work? I mean, you propose it or is it something that, it, that uh, a parish or a hospital or can invest in? How does that work? So uh, we don't go looking for locations. I think people, uh, that's probably one of the misconceptions is these locations are calling us. I mean, we're finding a baby every three days in America, you know, in dumpsters and trash cans. And if you're down in the Miami area, you, you probably heard about that infant that was just pulled from that dumpster last month by a construction crew. And so this is happening every three days in America. And when you have something like that, that happens and your first responders are the ones pulling these dead infants from these trash cans and dumpsters, they want a solution. They, they want something that works. And so the, the baby box is, is, is working. I mean, you can see it in, in our numbers that, that we've had last year and this year so far. And so they're contacting us, uh, asking, how do we get this? What can we do? Can we partner with you? And 95% of the locations don't pay for the box. We find donors and supporters that want to, that want to sponsor it. And, you know, and it's interesting too, because Florida's actually kind of fighting us a little bit about putting baby boxes in, and we don't even want any money from the state of Florida. We don't want any money. We don't want anything from the state of Florida. We just want the, the, uh, the basically legislation passed to protect the mother in these situations. Because right now what we're ha- what's happening in New Mexico, we just had a baby that was placed in the box in New Mexico. Well, child services there is looking for the parent. And it's because of their statute. It's because of their law. It needs to be adjusted. And so same thing with Florida. We can put boxes in all over the place in Florida, but if a mother is is uses it, the prosecutor has the option to, to charge this mother with abandonment, and that needs to change. And so, uh, but we're, again, we're not asking for money from any state. We do this based on fundraising and donations. We refuse to take government funds um, for our baby box program. And I think that's what kind of stands us away from, from the rest of these organizations that do safe haven. Monica, where can our listeners who are inspired by, by your beautiful program go to donate? Uh, they can go to shbb.org. Uh, just click the Donate Now button. Uh, there's a link on there where you can uh, donate with a credit card or you can mail us a check. 
there's also a store on our website where you can get uh, just gear, just merchandise to where you can open up the conversation. You can wear a sweatshirt that says safe haven. And, it, you know, it just opens up the conversation from somebody that you're talking with. And so there's many ways that you can support a ministry like ours. And uh, just go to our website at shbb.org and, and it lays it out for you. Well, thank you so much, Monica, and I hope that your ministry continues to grow and that our country is filled with baby boxes so that these babies are never pulled out of dumpsters again. So thank you, Monica. Thank you so much for having us. And now Father Roger Landry offers a short and inspiring homily for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to join you again and ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us on the first Sunday of Lent as we will journey with Jesus into the desert. Most people have little desire to go to the desert, certainly for no more than a tourist visit. Even in the midst of a rather frigid and snowy February in the Northeast, few of us are dreaming about the Sahara, the Arabian, or the Gobi deserts. But at a spiritual level, we should always have a great love for the desert, because the desert is what helps us to understand the 40-day pilgrimage of Lent, which we join and imitate Jesus in the, des in the desert and ponder the fruits of what he learned and experienced there upon his return. Every Lent, the same Holy Spirit, whom we read in this Sunday's Gospel, drove Jesus into the desert, wants to drive us into the desert with him. Lent is meant to recapitulate Jesus' 40 days away from everything so that we, apart from every distraction, can focus on our relationship with God and others and on who we are. And with Christ's help, can confront and overcome the way the devil seeks to distort those relations and that image. To go into the desert is increasingly difficult for us today. We're so connected that if we're out of cell phone range, we can easily feel totally lost. While the Lord is not calling us physically all to go to the sands of the Mojave, he is calling us to the state of the desert, removing ourselves from distractions, from our screens and devices, newspapers and magazines, and the various things that may be fine in themselves, but crowd our lives with so much noise that we can't hear God, and with clutter that we can't see God. The first temptation we face in Lent is to refuse to go into the desert with Christ, to think that our Lent can be complete if, for example, all we do is give up booze and sweets. We need silence. We need prayer. As Vatican Cardinal Robert Seurat from Guinea wrote in a recent book, The Power of Silence, God is silence and the devil is noisy. God's first language is silence. In order to understand this language, we must learn to be silent and rest in God. God waits for us, waits for silence to reveal himself. Regaining the sense of silence is therefore a priority, an urgent necessity. The true revolution comes from silence, it leads us toward God and toward others. So the first big hurdle in Lent is for us to hear Christ's voice from the desert saying, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. The next lesson we need to grasp is what's supposed to be the fruit of that time in the desert. What does the Holy Spirit who drives us to this Lenten desert experience want to help us to achieve? Jesus shares this lesson with us as soon as he's finished that 40-day retreat. He returns saying, repent and believe in the good news. These are the words he shared with us earlier this week as we were marked with ashes on Wednesday. To repent, what metanoia means in Greek, is to revolutionize the way we look at things, at the world, at ourselves, at others, so that we might put on the way Christ looks at things. It means to turn one's thoughts around, or better, right side up. It's as if we've been going in one direction, Jesus tells us, stop, turn around and go in this new direction. Jesus is not calling us to a minor course correction, but to something far closer to a 180 degree turn. He wants us all to examine those parts of our life that are not in alignment with him and convert in such a way that we begin to turn with him full time, which is what convertere means. That's what he hopes to accomplish in us by our 40 days with him in prayer and silence. When we look at the way the devil tried to tempt Jesus in the desert, we see three fundamental ways he seeks to get human beings out of spiritual alignment too. Yet we also learn there how Christ teaches us to come back into alignment, which is what Jesus precisely wants to help us to do each Lent. 
as we see in the lengthier accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke of Jesus' temptations in the desert, which must have been related by Jesus himself since no one else was there, we see that one diabolical temptation is to try to get Jesus and us to disorder our relationship with God the Father. This happened when the devil tempted Jesus to throw himself off the parapet of the temple, presuming that God would save him by sending his angels to prevent his even dashing his foot against a stone. The devil seeks to tempt us to believe that God will prevent any harm to us or others whenever we do something risky or fatal. The devil wants to get us to jump off various cliffs and then blame God for letting us suffer. He tempts us ultimately towards spiritual suicide. Jesus shows that the proper response is never to put the Lord our God to the test. Never. But in fact to love him and throw ourselves into his arms rather than from dangerous precipices into sin. The second temptation is to disorder our relationships with others. The devil promised Jesus that he would give Jesus rule over all the cities of the world, to be control over everyone else, to have them serve him rather than he serve them, if only he would take the bargain of falling down before the devil in homage. Jesus resisted the, this temptation toward a type of diabolical control by quoting scripture about worshiping and serving the Lord our God alone. The devil tries to tempt us too to distort our relationship with others so that we will seek to exercise dominion over them, to try to control them, to have power over them. The antidote is to follow Jesus' advice, to serve God and others made in his image and likeness, reverencing the Lord in them, striving to serve them with love rather than be served, ultimately to lay down our lives for them as Christ himself did. The third fiendish temptation was to disorder our relationship within ourselves, using what God has given egocentrically rather than for God and others. This is shown in the temptation the devil gave to Jesus to change stones into bread after 40 days of hunger. How strong this temptation must have been for someone so famished. But Jesus replied that we live not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. We're supposed to use our talents not selfishly, but for God and others, and ultimately for our own true good, that the word of God may be done in us. In response to these three classic temptations, Jesus not only shows us how to resist with the power of the word of God, but also as the divine physician prescribes for us on Ash Wednesday the medicine we need when he speaks about the three traditional Lenten practices of penance, almsgiving, and fasting. Prayer helps us reorder our relationship with God against the temptation of presumption. Almsgiving helps us to reorder our relationship properly with others against the temptation of power and control. Fasting helps to reorder ourselves within, making sure our body obeys a properly formed conscience against the temptation to order everything to satisfy our pleasures. That's why the three practices constitute a crucial part of our Lenten program of living with Jesus in the desert and entering into his resistance to every temptation. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are not part of a spiritual multiple choice test, but are a three-drug cocktail we need to treat the illness of sin. Prayer strengthens our faith in God, fasting our hope toward the fulfillment of our physical and spiritual hunger, and almsgiving our love for others as Christ has loved us. They are at the root of our spiritual renewal as we seek to unite ourselves to Jesus as he fasts, as he prays, as he gives us himself. This Lent, as the Spirit drives us into the desert to be with Jesus, Jesus, out of mercy, is not going to have us fast the entirety of our time. This Sunday, he will feed us with the nourishment that satisfies hungry hearts, as he gives himself as the word that fills our silence. The Mass is where our fasting, prayer, and charity reach their zenith. In preparation for the Eucharist, we fast at least an hour, so that we may hunger more and more for every word that comes from the Father's mouth, and especially for Jesus, the word made flesh. In the Mass, we enter into the supreme form of prayer, Jesus' own from the Last Supper in Calvary. And we not only receive greatest, the greatest alm of Jesus, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, but are helped by him from the inside, so that we might do this in memory of him, living truly charitable, Eucharistic lives, giving our own body, blood, sweat, tears, and heart in loving service to others. So we prepare to receive Jesus on the first Sunday of Lent, we ask him for the grace to live this 40-day calling, to come apart from the crowds with him to a deserted place in the most bold and holy way possible, so that we can experience the joy that comes from repentance and faith and become signs with him to the whole world that this is indeed the time of fulfillment and the kingdom of God is at hand. God bless you. With that, I leave you. 
And thank you again for being our listeners. And we continue to pray for you always. Thank you.